Well, happy new year to you. Aren't you glad that's over? <laughs> 2020 is over and whatever happens next, we don't have to do that again. So that's nice. Um, well, thank you guys for joining. This is the first stream of the year. It's a Q&A and apparently it's a casual Friday because it's a holiday and I just forgot to wear a button-up shirt as is my tradition. Um, <clears throat> at any rate, I wanted to start off by updating you guys on some things that I have planned in the coming year. Some of the things I'm thinking about. Now, first off, let me say this. I always regret, and I hope I don't this time, I regret like announcing what I have coming because later on as things develop, as my I'm always calculating and thinking the, about these things, I sometimes change my mind or shift directions. Um, sometimes whole projects I wanted to do, I, I set on the back burner instead of the front burner. But let me tell you, tentatively, you know, God willing, and if I don't change my mind, what I have planned. Um, we're in 2021. We're going to continue doing uh, Q&As, the weekly Q&As. These guys, I've had great feedback from you guys. I know you're already loading your questions in and I'll be answering them. And I'm, as always, I'll put timestamps down below so that it's just a, a, a searchable catalog of tons of answers that will uh, hopefully be wonderfully helpful and meet people right where they need it. And also, as you just consume lots of Q&A content, it's like you you stop needing it after a while. That's kind of how I feel, right? Like you listen for a while and you start to have your own answers. And they're not always exactly the same as mine either. And that's that's fine. That's good. You just, you're learning to think biblically, right? Not to not to copy and repeat, oh, here's Mike's answer. Here's Mike's thought on that. But rather the, the whole process of just thinking biblically about things, that's the thing that I want to get into the heart and mind of the believer because you'll encounter a billion situations in life where that ability to think biblically is going to really benefit and help you. And uh, I'm drinking out of my wife's coffee cup today. I can't believe they called him Grogu of all things 2020. But at any rate, <clears throat> um, one of the other things we'll be doing other than the Q&As, weekly Q&As every Friday, 1 p.m. Pacific time. That's what I'm probably going to continue to do them on. I don't plan on changing anything about that. About an hour, 20 questions coming from you guys. Uh, I like to continue experimenting with something. On my YouTube channel, I started doing interviews last year a little bit more. Not, and not, not even a lot, right? But a little bit more I did interviews. And I realized that what I wanted to do originally with interviews, little little inside baseball of what I have going on in my head, I, I want to like, re, let, let's say I want to take Craig Blomberg, who I did actually interview recently for The Passion Project, and you'll see his video coming out real soon. Let's say I wanted to take and interview him on his the historical reliability of the Gospels. Well, normally I would want to read the entire book carefully and slowly, take notes, then go back and look at all those notes and compile interview questions based upon those notes. And then it would just take a mountain of time for every interview. And that's a problem because I've already got a full schedule with the things I'm doing. So my experiment with interviews is this, is I bring people on not being able to research and read everything they've done. And then we have a very open, candid conversation where I'm allowed to disagree with them and they're allowed to disagree with me. And to be completely honest, you guys, as someone who watches interviews, I'd prefer that, that kind of candid, open, friendly dialogue where um, everybody's not always agreeing about everything. So the last couple of interviews I've done, even for the Passion Project, I told the scholars ahead of time, the people, hey, if you disagree with me on something, I want you to feel totally comfortable saying that out loud. This isn't about making me look good. To be honest, I look better than I probably should. Uh, constantly producing educational content that I prepare makes me look like a lot smarter than I really am. And so I, I want that to happen. So I'm experimenting with more interviews and more um, hopefully very authentic, real kind of moments in those interviews where people can get 
into the thought process that goes behind this stuff. But that means something. That means I need your guys' grace in an area. It means I'm going to interview people who I don't even know what they think about every issue. I'm interviewing them because of one particular topic that I think they have value they can present. I may not know what their views are on other things. It doesn't mean that I'm endorsing everybody that comes on my channel. There's a difference between seeing someone as a resource in a particular area and a resource that you should consider thoughtfully and as opposed to thinking of someone as being endorsed. Oh, Mike brought so-and-so on, on his channel, therefore he endorses everything that they that they think and do, right? Like I think uh, Dr. Nijay Gupta, who did a great job on the Passion Translation, I think he's also a proponent of, I think, and I could be wrong, of the new perspective on Paul, which I tend to dislike, right? But I'm not trying to endorse that view just by having him on to talk about Galatians and the Passion Translation, nor did he push that view in that interview at all. So, yeah, that's experimenting with interview. That's something I'll be doing. Uh, in addition, I think I'm going to try something I did last year with the topic of marriage and divorce and remarriage, particularly divorce and remarriage, where I sort of paused my teaching and I just did a crazy in-depth, massive study project where I just, all I did was read and read and read and research and check footnotes and buy books and books and books. And, and then finally, I came out with this massive, long teaching uh, that I thought was thorough and where I feel my heart is settled on a topic that has always bothered me that I think is very relevant to people that I just didn't know what to do with. I think in this coming year and maybe in coming years in the future, I'd like to do that more where I just sort of pause my weekly teaching. I'll still do Q and A's, but I pause my weekly teaching temporarily of going verse by verse through, through the Bible, right? We're in Mark now. Next, we might do Hebrews. That's at least on deck possibly. Um, but we pause that for like a month or two months. And the next project I want to do, here's my announcement. My next project, I want to do women and their roles, gender roles, women teaching uh, in the church, according to scripture. I want to do a thorough, thorough study on this topic, reading the best material from both sides and then presenting it to you guys with as much clarity as possible. Even if there's some things I don't know the answers to, you'll at least understand the debate, right? You'll, 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 you'll see, here's the argument on this side, here's this side, and I'll give you as much clarity as I can after I spend all the time getting as much clarity as I can on the topic. I'm excited to do that. I think it's desperately needed in the body of Christ. And to be honest, I don't see nearly enough available resources for people to work through those issues. So that's the next thing I'd like to do in 2021. At some point, maybe a few months down the road, maybe like April, um, I'll kick into that, that topic as a focused issue. Maybe. Now, maybe later. So please don't hold me to the date on that. But it should be this year. Now, there's going to be other issues, too, that I've got on deck that I really want to talk about, things that I'm passionate about, things I care about, and things I don't know the answer to. And all I can do is give you the, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know. <laughs> I hate that, but i got to be honest. And what I'd like to do is chase those issues down and then bring the answers to you in ways that are super helpful, not only to educate you, but to equip teachers, right? Where like a pastor, a teacher, someone who cares deeply about the issue, where they know Mike's resource and his timestamps and his footnotes and the references he gives in the video, that is that is like a, a one-stop shop for chasing down everything related to this issue. And it doesn't mean you agree with me about everything, but it's just gonna be this, hopefully God willing, this amazing resource like I think we have with the divorce and remarriage video. And um, yeah. That's something else I'd like to do. Something I think that God's uniquely equipped me to do that sort of thing. And I just need to cut, carve the time out, which means less video content, but better quality content, which 
is good. Also, in 2021, and thank you guys for joining. Happy New Year! If you're just you're just I'm just giving you guys an update on if you're just joining on what I have planned for 2021. Uh, so more Q and A's, experiments with interviews, more interviews, and I talked a little bit about kind of what I'm asking for your grace on that because I may bring people on or I don't agree with them on everything. Um, I will actually uh, projects like studying women teaching and women's gender roles in the church that, that and I'm not talking about uh, transgender issues or anything like that. They're talking about just between male, female, what are the instructions there about the church? Not in marriage. I already have teaching on that. I think it's pretty clear. I'm talking about in, in the, in the leadership role of the church. That's the focus. Then, um, website updates and improvements. I, I, I should, you shouldn't announce website stuff because it always takes way longer than you think it will. But here's the tentative thing. We are, we have been working for a while behind the scenes on updating the biblethinker.org website. What I'd like to do in the long run is make it really searchable so that if you have a, any random thing that you're thinking, does Mike have content on this exact question, this particular thing, that we can get it to the point, God willing, maybe this year, hopefully in the next few months, we'll see, um, to where you could go to that website, biblethinker.org, and it will be a better searchable database than even YouTube or Google will provide so that you could actually say like, okay, I want to know where Mike talks about open theism and it would bring you not only the videos where I've addressed it, but the specific timestamps to where I had a Q&A or a moment in a video where I talked about that issue. This is a lot of work to do. It's what we hope to accomplish in 2021 or maybe 22. Um, that should be coming, Lord willing, <laughs> if it can be, can be possible. And because of the generous donation support that I've received, I have not asked for donations since April um, and I'm not asking now. I, we're so well taken care of because of your guys' support. And also, I'm a super frugal person. Like, I just don't spend money that doesn't need to be spent. And we, we're we not having these, no one's getting a $600,000 paycheck or anything like that with this ministry. And so we're well taken care of with our staff of two people right now. It would be nice, me and Sarah Zimmerman, uh, two M's, two N's, by the way. <laughs> just, there you go, Sarah, because I spelled her name wrong the other day. Um, but the, the agenda for... For that, realizing that our budget, like, is actually currently what comes in, and I won't spend it frivolously. It it's it's more than what we need. So we may be expanding in 2021. I might be able to hire people to do things like, just get. Well, let me put it this way. Here's the mission, right? Free content as available as possible. That's the goal for my ministry. Totally free as available as possible. Now you can do a lot of stuff when you want to put your content out for free when you don't need any money in return. There's things you can do that other people won't do. And those are the things I'm interested in doing. I don't know if we can get on radio programs. Um, I don't know if we can uh, seek to expand to other platforms beyond YouTube, or maybe we should start looking into advertising. Spending I've never spent money on advertising, YouTube, Facebook, anything, because it seems like a waste of money to me. It doesn't seem like good return on investment. Um, but maybe we should consider that and doing it smartly and well. So perhaps hiring someone whose whole goal is just to um, reach out on Instagram and create content that would bless people for free on Instagram or on other locations, other social medias, or perhaps on radio. Or, I mean, just there's, there's any number of possibilities. Maybe we can pay for money to get the new website when it's developed into search engine optimization so that in Google search results, we're landing really hard, just like we are already in YouTube search results. So things are going great. Um, we're very happy. We've had over eight, I think it was over 8 million views last year. Um, we've gone from 100,000 to 185 or 184,000 subscribers just now. And this is with a staff of two people and some volunteers like our, like our wonderful mods in the live chat. Um, the, the reach of this ministry 
for the number of people invest, invested in it is just ridiculous. The return on investment is crazy. And I'm just, I want to multiply that. So that's the hope for 2021. There's my recap. And now I'm going to go to your questions. Grab my phone here. And the first one is coming in a second because <laughs> I have to load this app. All right. Um, so actually the first question was really, what am I doing in 2021? What are my plans? Now, number two, this is hotwax93 who says, you seemed to imply in a previous video that the dead can be aware of what happens on earth. How do you reconcile that with Ecclesiastes 9.5, which says the dead know nothing? Um, I don't recall saying that. Um, so let me, let me say, obviously people come to change their minds on things, but let me just pause for a second and consider this possibility. Can the dead be aware of what happens on earth? I, I would probably answer it at least at the moment, I would answer it more carefully. I would say this, can they, like, is it possible? Is it conceivable? Yes, it's conceivable. Um, however, there's some pros and cons of that, right? Like, and I'm just thinking out loud here, right? Thinking biblically here. So when Saul, uh, when Saul, King Saul, called up Samuel from the dead, um, he was in, uh, in my view, he was in uh, Abraham's bosom. And he calls him up, and it seems it seems like Samuel was in a place of rest and peace. And like in one side, you might think he was not aware of what was going on. But in another side, he at least, when he showed up, he was suddenly aware of what Saul was doing and what was going on. Um, but but my, my hint in that, I'm guessing here, but my guess in that passage is that Saul was not actively aware of, of what, or excuse me, um, Samuel was not actively aware of what Saul was doing until he was called up. That would be my view. But later in Revelation, we do have like the saints in heaven that are calling out like, how long, Lord, how long until we, until we find out or until you judge the earth, how long is it going to be? And they're like waiting and anticipating. So there's actually a concern in heaven, at least in this passage in Revelation that I would, I would think gives us this there's a concern in heaven for the things on earth but when you're asking can they like watch here's where i'm pretty skeptical i i doubt that people who are in the presence of god can physically see the things happening on earth but there are angels going back and forth so it doesn't mean they can't get reports can't find out what's things that are going on in that sense so i'm open to them having some kind of knowledge but i think that they would have to attain it more likely in a way that is more normal and not through like visually seeing and hearing the stuff that's happening on earth. That, that would be my my opinion. Now about Ecclesiastes 9.5, which says that uh, the dead know nothing. I think Ecclesiastes is a special case. Ecclesiastes is a book that waffles back and forth between two worldviews. Uh, basically an atheist type worldview. And then the correct worldview. And as he views things from the atheist perspective, he does it like, like um, an internal critique I'll call it, and here's my view of Ecclesiastes, of a godless perspective. Uh, they would never use the term atheist back then. It didn't exist, right? Well, English didn't exist. But it's like an internal critique of a view of life that doesn't involve God. And then the major exhortation of the book is you need a, you need God in your life. Like one of the great harms of, of removing God from your life, either practically or even in your beliefs, right? You could just ignore God or you could believe there is no God in the sad, sad worldview of atheism is that life becomes purposeless, meaningless, hopeless, um, uh, and doomed. And Ecclesiastes brings that out. It brings out those worldview problems of atheism. So when it says the dead know nothing, I think it's from the perspective of the, the, um, the atheist, per, you know, perspective yet later on in Ecclesiastes, it'll say, yet there is a judgment. You are going to stand before God. You're going to be, uh, 
dealing with God in the afterlife based upon the life you've lived here. So yeah, I'm going on a little too long, but there's my, <coughs> there's my thoughts on Ecclesiastes, why I don't think that's telling us what the dead can or can't know. I think it's an internal critique of an atheist type worldview from my very 21st century perspective. Um, a godless life from a um, ancient world perspective. All right, question number three um, from Sarah. In Genesis 4, what is your take on why God was not pleased with Cain's sacrifice? The text says he was a worker of the ground and Abel was a cattle owner. So wouldn't it make sense that Cain would give grain and Abel would give meat since those were just their individual professions? Um, I'm trying to recall right now off the top of my head the, the way it's worded. Um, so let, let's just look together at this passage. So Cain and Abel, uh, we are all, I'm assuming we're all generally familiar with these two brothers. How they both bring an offering and God approves of one and does not approve of the other. But let's just read the passage for, for clues and hints about this. In Genesis 4.1, now the man, okay, well, they have a kid. Um, and here verse 2 is where it becomes some significant information for us. She gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, as the question stated. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. So Cain's a farmer. Abel is a, um, what do you call that guy, a husbandman? I don't remember. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Okay, he brings an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. He brings an, an animal offering and it's a firstling. It's a, it's a, it's a firstborn. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Okay. In the text, in this section right here, I'm highlighting, we don't have any clue as to why God disapproved. All, um, so it makes sense in the story that we're told that Abel is a, um, a farmer or, uh, sorry, keeper of the flock. Cain is a farmer it makes sense that they bring the offerings they bring, right? So I don't know that I should read too much into that right away. Now you could say, well, typologically, and this is what some people do in typology, Cain is bringing his own works, whereas Abel is bringing what's a sacrifice because it represents Christ. So Cain represents, I'm going to work my way to heaven, the fruit of my labor, you know, the fruit of the ground of my hard work. And Abel, he's bringing this, this thing that represents Jesus. It's, it's Jesus that does the work for him. Now, it may be true that typologically there is an interesting relationship there. That doesn't mean that that was the reason why God didn't approve of Cain's sacrifice. Do you catch what I'm saying? Like you can see a typological significance here without it being the reason why God disapproved of Cain's sacrifice. So I don't know that that case stands as the reason. Let's read on though. Uh, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? And Cain's upset because he's basically jealous. Um, his offering was not approved, but his brother's was. And of course he probably thought he was this, he's the, he's the firstborn son, right? He's like, I'm the one. And then here comes Abel. Um, <clears throat> if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and it's desires for you, but you must master it. So he's not being right. He's not doing well. There's, there's something wrong. In, in Cain, we don't know the details here. We just know something's wrong. We know he's angry. We know he's jealous of his brother and he's not doing the right thing about it. Now, the next passage where this comes in, where and you guys are probably already thinking about it, is Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have a description of some of the qualitative differences between Cain and Abel's offerings. And here's where scripture actually answers our question somewhat. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice. 
How? By faith. He offered a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, still speaks. By faith, um, oh, then it goes on to Enoch. So what was better about Abel's sacrifice? Well, it was by faith. That's, that's it. There's something that Abel had in his heart that he was believing, that he was his intent, his heart that was different than Cain. There may be a typological significance in the sacrifice. I grant that. But the difference majorly is Abel's offering. Now, for those who want to say the significant issue is Abel offers Jesus's works through typology and Cain offers his own works through the fruit of the ground. I think that actually is a problem because it actually calls what Abel offered his sacrifice. It doesn't call it somebody else's. And it describes it as his gifts. God testified that Abel's gifts, what Abel offered to God, was something that was done through faith. So the only difference scripture gives us between the two is one was offered in faith and the other was not. And that is the consistent thing in Hebrews 11. Um, so I would not lean too hard on that typology stuff. I don't think that we can consistently hold that even though it preaches well. And there may be an element of that there, but I wouldn't make it the, the, the reason why came his offering was rejected. I would make it a coincidental typological element not the cause. All right, next question. Let's look at um, Ed Mola's question, <clears throat> who says, if soul sleep isn't a thing, people who have been resurrected are essentially being snatched out of paradise or hell and put back into a body. Why would that be? Um, okay, Ed, uh, here's where I have to kind of try to guess at what's going on in, in, behind your question here a little bit. So forgive me if I get any of this wrong. Um, I'm going to read it one more time. If soul sleep isn't a thing, I think part of, partially it depends on what you mean by soul sleep here. Um, then you say people who have been resurrected are essentially being snatched out of paradise or hell and put back into a body. Why would that be? I, I guess my my issue here is um, for Ed or Ed Mola. Um, I don't see a problem with that. Like if if that's what the Lord does, if he if 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 I have like a location where my disembodied self is. And then I'm brought back into a body later. I don't really have a problem with that. Now, I think if you affirm soul sleep, at least one version of soul sleep, you still have to affirm that because you're affirming that you're unconscious, but that doesn't mean you don't exist. Now, perhaps you aren't even spatial. Perhaps there's some sense in which you're not really spatial. You're sort of inhabiting a place, but it's not really a, lo a location exactly in the normal sense, but it is a place in, in another sense or something like that. But you're still being snatched and put back in a body at some point. Um, now, if you have another version of soul sleep, which is really just ceasing to exist, it's kind of like a physicalism thing, like all we are is our bodies, where a person dies and they just stop existing. So <clears throat> they're not just asleep where they're not conscious, but they exist and, and they're still uh, like a, a living spirit. No, no, they're not that. They're actually stop existing. Um, well, if that's your view, and, and some people do have that view, and some Christians have that view. I, I don't agree with it, but some, they're my brothers in Christ. They have that view, and sisters, of course. And, um, you know, when they, when they have that view, that seems even more strange to me because now you have a person who literally stops existing and then they're like recreated, but there is no continuation that I can tell between the, the, and maybe I'm wrong here, so I'm just telling you this is my thoughts. But as far as I can tell, there's no continuation. There's no continual person from the one who died to the one who is back. It's more like a replica than it is a continuing person, right? Like, that is a problem to me. So that is, is a bigger challenge to that view, in my opinion. 
Uh, question number five, Reed asks a question. Scripture is clear that we're sinful, but do Christians sin every second, minute, and hour? At least not in some sense. Um, because the, uh, and some people say like, I just sin all day long. That's all I do. And, and I recognize there's like a healthiness. There's a health in that, but there's also an unhealth in that. I'm going to go to a scripture here to try to support my opinion. Um, on which I'm basing my opinion. But let me say this. Those who are like, man, I just, I sin all the time, all day long. Uh, maybe what they're recognizing is they have sinful temptations all day long. Like they have a, a carnal nature that is always pulling at them towards wickedness, towards selfishness, towards laziness, towards indulgence that is ungodly, towards lust, towards whatever. That is appropriate and healthy. But if you think that temptation is sin, then you are in a very dangerous place spiritually. Like you're just going to be depressed, man. And you won't notice when you fight temptation and say no, that you had a great and wonderful victory because you're thinking you're sinful all the time. That's just how you are. So when I was tempted and I didn't, it wasn't like, praise the Lord. I'm, I'm walking with Christ. What a wonderful victory. Instead, it's that very temptation itself was a failure. But no, we have not sinned when we're tempted. James 1 tells us that each one is tempted and each one's drawn away and enticed by his own desires. That's when he's tempted. He's drawn away and enticed by his own desires. And then when when desire is conceived, when it conceives with your will, when you give in your heart to it, to either f to go from desire to fantasizing or desire to behavior, to actions that um, are uh, inspired by the sinful desires, that's when it becomes sin. Right? That's when you sin. Now, are you doing that all the time? No, you're not. And Galatians 6 is one passage I'll go to. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not, you too will not be tempted. Uh, I'm reading the NASB just randomly today. I bounce around with translations and I, that's kind of my habit nowadays. Um, <clears throat> but here we go and we say this, that there's like a Christian who you could look at a group of believers and you see one who's caught up in a trespass. Right? We're not just sinning all the time. He's caught up in a trespass. It's become habitual. It's become like dominating in his life. And so in that sense, I think we need to be able to have that category of saying somebody's living in sin versus not living in sin. This is a very important difference that even scripture is recognizing. And I don't want to muddy that with a, um, with a misused understanding of humility in thinking that because I'm tempted, I'm constantly in sin. Yeah. <clears throat> struggle with sin every day, all day long, every second, every minute, every hour. Um, I don't know if every second I'm struggling with sin, not that I'm aware of, but definitely every day and um, maybe not even every hour. Now, there's hours I go where I'm not aware of any temptation, co not cognizant of it. Maybe there's a lack of spirituality in my heart, but I'm not going to become paranoid over those things. Um, I'm going to seek the Lord and he can show me my issues as he sees fit. Question number six, I was, Tina says, I was raised a JW and baptized as a kid, but not in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How do I know what church to choose and who should baptize me? I'm afraid of being misled. <clears throat> Tina, um, first off, praise the Lord that he has given you an awareness of the true gospel of Christ, that he got you out of um, the stuff that you've been raised in. That's so hard to, to just overcome. And then you're left, in my experience, the people I've talked with are left with this like deep, an understandable mistrust towards spiritual leadership, right? It's understandable. It, it, it's like, um, I had a pretty, um, 
unpleasant uh, childhood in some ways. Not the worst, not the worst, but in some ways. I don't want to share details of my childhood because I, I don't want to make the people who will be looking bad uh, for things they did many years ago look bad today and things they're not doing anymore. And I don't want to do that to, to others. So I, I reserve the right to withhold some details there. <clears throat> but, but I remember at one point when I would go to like friends' homes and their dad would come home. Okay, I had my I had my dad, my stepdad. Between the two, things were not great. And um, uh, I would my friend's dad would come home, and I remember being nervous just when the guy showed up. And like, there was nothing wrong with my friend's dads, but like, I was just nervous. Just their presence worried me, and I didn't know that that was weird or unhealthy or wrong. It was many years for the Lord to like work me through all that stuff, but. I think the same can happen with someone who's been spiritually abused and misled by spiritual leaders, people claiming to speak in the name of God, is that you enter into the presence of someone else who's being a spiritual leader and whether they're good or bad, they just get nervous about them, right? Like, what if you're going to be mean to me? <laughs> what if you're going to treat me poorly like the previous spiritual leaders did? And that's a totally understandable thing. <clears throat> what I want to encourage is that um, it will take time to try to overcome this. It will take time to... Oh, <laughs> Sarah Zimmerman tells me I'm reading last week's questions. That's so funny. I just, thank you, Sarah, for letting me know. I thought, this sounds like a lot like a question I had last time around. Oh, man, that's Facebook Messenger. Sometimes it goes whoop and bounces around. I'm still going to finish answering this question for those who might be involved in it. And then we're going to go back to the right questions. Have I doing this all day? My goodness. All right, we're getting bonus questions today. I feel so bad. <clears throat> um, at any rate, um, See, I fail. <laughs> uh, what you want to find, here's some things I'd recommend you guys find. If you've been spiritually abused in the past by leaders, you want to find leaders who, um, not leaders who reflect the same kind of um, abusive, authoritative approach. Even It can be easy to fall into that because you're used to that mentality, right? Of domineering, tell me everything to believe and think and do, um, control my life kind of leadership. But you want to look for leaders that show proper humility and godliness, that show teachability, that show restraint, in the things that they proclaim as the truth of God versus where they will not go. You want to see that kind of leader. They may even seem to you like a weak leader because you're used to, because abusive leaders will often feel strong. It's not strength, it's abuse. And then when you see unabusive, humble leaders, they will look weak to you. And that's not true. They're not weak. They're humble. And humility is often mistaken as weakness. You're looking for those people. Who will baptize you if that's you're in, in that situation? Um, can I say this? You just need a church that's real. And you be baptized in the name of Christ. It doesn't mean that church owns you. It doesn't mean that you you have to go the rest of your entire life, no matter what. It just means that you're associating yourself with Christ through an authentic, genuine body of Christ, even with flaws. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. Um, okay, now let me make sure I'm in the right spot here. That's way out. It bounced up again back to December 18th. Okay. <clears throat> um, Okay, no, I, I did I did just one wrong question. Maybe somebody needed that. Hopefully God used that error. All right, question uh, number seven, I guess, six, six, whatever this one is. Lasix97 um, says, Hello, Mike, in your video on Mark 11, 22 through 25, you talked about how important the temple was for the Jews in regard to prayer. But didn't God hear the prayers of believers like Daniel without a temple? <clears throat> yeah, good question. Um, so I, I do, I loved Man, I'm loving the Mark series. Like, I'm thrilled to get to do it and uh, to have you guys join with me in it. <clears throat> and I'm studying right now for the next section in Mark where Jesus asks that question of the leaders. Um, who, uh, who's, who is basically, who is the Messiah? How does, 
how do you say he's David's son when David calls him Lord? And it's this great quote of Psalm 110. We're going to get into all that this Sunday uh, at my church and then Monday online when I pick up with that. And then Wednesday, by the way, is the next drop of the Passion Project this coming Wednesday. But um, the answer is simple. Lay 697, here's the answer. Um, God, uh, when they weren't in the temple, they prayed toward the temple because the temple represented access to God for the for the Jewish people. Just like Jesus, we pray in his name. They prayed toward the temple. So that's the Old Testament parallel of that. So Daniel actually turned physically toward the temple and he prayed in that direction. This might be why he goes out on a balcony to pray outside because he's kind of directing his prayer to the Lord's presence uh, where the temple was. And that's, uh, I think that's why. Now, this is actually in um, King Solomon's prayer for the temple. It, he's he's praying for the temple. He asks God, when we when we turn and pray toward this temple, hear us, Lord, hear us, Lord. And so this is kind of like us as believers. We are the temple uh, and the presence of Christ in us is how we have access in prayer to God the Father. It, it's amazing the access we have to God in prayer. Uh, we, we always take it for granted. We have never... I don't think there's been a day where I've appreciated prayer for what it really is. I'm so blown away that I have God's presence in me through Christ and I have access to him through prayer. Um, may God open up our hearts to see that more and more. It's funny because we would walk up to the, if we saw the temple today, we, it doesn't exist, right? But if we saw, if we walked up to the temple, we'd be blown away. Or there's those who, who walk into Jerusalem and they travel up and they get to Jerusalem and then they go to the temple mountain. They stand there and they're like, wow, this is like where the presence of God was. And they're blown away. And, and I kind of want to look and be like, that's you. <laughs> You're the temple. You you shouldn't be blown away at your amazing glory, right? Jerusalem's not like the most beautiful, wonderful place in, a, in an outward sense. It's God that made it amazing and God's presence in us that makes that, that just absolutely amazing. It blows me away. I need to go pray more. Um, question from Tara Carr. Hi, Mike. The other day, my friend and future roommate, a Christian, told me he has pursued a gay lifestyle since March. Any advice on points to hit when he and I are able to talk again? Um, Tara, my first thought is is on your own pray. Pray that God would give you compassion and also boldness and a real solid understanding of, of how to view these things. Um I would also ask that you seek to understand your friend before you try to fix him. I'm just giving you my two, my two cents here for what it's worth, Tara. I would encourage you to try to understand him before you try to fix him. But here's the problem with this. We have Christians that don't try to, some of us don't try to understand people. We just, we just want to go preach at them and preach at them. But we don't realize we're fixing the wrong problems, right? When you try to understand them, you're finding out what the real problems are so you can address those. And that's a big deal. You're also building a bridge of love, Um People who pursue, um, I'm just being honest here, you guys, and some of you would know, you may have been in this situation too. Those who I know who've pursued a gay lifestyle, who've been in, um, uh, you know, like close to me, who I've known close closely, they they do um, probably 50% of the time, um, they suddenly despise me. And, I mean, I'm serious. Like, they, like even family that has cut me off because one person in my family became openly gay and I was never rude, or, but they just cut me off. Like I'm not a friend on Facebook anymore because there is a thought that Christians hate gay people and it's so harsh, harshly and strongly believed that they hate Christians for supposedly hating gay people. And so that we have like this major battle to try to overcome of showing like that's not true. Now, I can't be like, hey, guess what? I don't hate you. Like, but just be genuine and loving and honest. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. You want to start there, but you also want to do this. You want to avoid a pitfall. 
in my view, there's a pitfall that people fall into when they have a loved one who embraces homosexuality. And that is the thought that we have to approve of them in order to love them. We have to approve of their behavior, excuse me, in order to love them. And this is very dangerous. Um, th this is that you can't interact with the world at all if this is what you think love is, right? Jesus does not approve when he loves us. He dies on the cross. He's not approving of our sin. He's dying to pay for our sin. And so we must always hold the line there. When you're seeking to understand them, you're not trying to find out how right they are about their weird theology and practices. You're trying to understand where their heart is, where their mind is, what are the lies they're believing, and how can I reach them with the truth of God? Um, so start with questions. <clears throat> when you start to go, I understand him now. I get it, right? Like, <clears throat> here's a question. Sorry for clearing my throat a lot. Here's a question. Is is this person, um, they think that the Bible supports them. So they're delusional and thinking scripture supports them. They've heard from Matthew Vines and the Reformation Project. And they actually believe the Bible supports homosexuality. Or they don't believe the Bible. They think that they're, they're, they say they're a Christian, but they don't believe the Bible. They, don't, they think they can sort of rework Christianity and have their own version of sexual ethics. Like, um... Uh, <clears throat> like uh, uh, God is Gray, this YouTube channel people recently been asking me to look at, um, which is totally blasphemous content. Sorry, that's what that's what it is. Um, is that the view, or is it maybe I'm not even a Christian? I reject. I realize that, um, but I don't think any of that's true. I have my own version of ethics and values and things like that. Or is it <clears throat> maybe um, I believe it's all true, but I hate God and I hate all that stuff. I'd rather go to hell and be gay. Like where where is their heart on these things? Maybe they're just like oh, I I feel like I'm finding my real true self. And that's the core belief. Maybe the core belief is my true self is homosexual and I, I don't want to deny that. I want to be true to myself. So a belief that honesty and integrity is leading to this lifestyle is what's really going on. Well, I want to understand that so I can dialogue with them uh, on those issues. All right. Joaquin Dominguez says, uh, Joaquin Dominguez Morales says, Hi, Mike. My question is, is it sinful to want to not want to marry? How do I know if I'm called to stay single? Um, absolutely not. In fact... <laughs> Uh, read 1 Corinthians 7 and make sure to read the whole chapter, but there's a whole section on singleness. And singleness is actually better for the kingdom than marriage. Wow. If you want to be single, that's a great thing. When Jesus told the disciples that under just about no conditions can they divorce, they responded by saying, well, then it's better to not even get married. And Jesus says, well, that's a hard teaching, but, you know, for some people, that's a great idea. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> very, very sloppy paraphrase. Um, but you can read about this. And um, the uh, the idea here is that singleness is a wonderful thing. If someone told you singleness is bad or that you're supposed to have to, you have to get married, that's not biblical um, at all. Like that's totally cultural tradition. That's not scripture. Singleness is great. I was single till I was 30 and I used it for the Lord. I used it to serve God with crazy amounts of hours and time and with little commitments. And it served the Lord and spread his kingdom that much more. And I don't regret it at all. And then I chose to get married because I wanted to. So how do you know if you're called to singleness? Well, I think that um, there is such a thing as a gift. Paul talks about like a gift of singleness, but here's what I want to encourage. As much as that's true, don't take away your own ability to choose. You can choose. I want to serve God as a single person. That's what scripture seems to indicate clearly. Jesus is like to him who can accept it, accept it. Like if that's what you, if that's what you're thinking, go for it. You can do that. You can change your mind later. That's okay too. It's not like you have to take a vow of singleness. I wouldn't recommend that. You could just choose to serve God singly until you change your mind. But there's a choice you can make here. You're not. It's not just that the choice is being made for you in every case. Um, the Lord allows us to make lots of choices. Chip Ludic says a lot of people like 
happy church where everything is positive. I'm adding the quotes so you guys know his question has quotes. Thus, positivity and negativity become moral categories. What are the dangers of this approach? Oh, gosh, that's a great question, Chip. Um, very good observation of what's going on in a lot of churches. If we think positivity and negativity are in themselves moral, we are going to be very problematic. <laughs> Um, you know who does this? Who actually thinks that positivity, like a, a positive, positive statements and positive affirmations are good and anything negative, negative statements, negative beliefs, negative meaning like it's unpleasant, um, any of that type of thing is bad. That's new age and new thought teaching. This is not biblical at all by any, any stretch of the imagination. Um, so much of the scripture strikes us because it's like warnings and and bad news and stuff like that because it's coming as God sometimes will send a prophet as people are rebelling and he wants to warn them before judgment comes. But none of that's positive thinking. So yeah, um, positive thinking finds no, uh, as, as a total rule, right, where positive thoughts are good and, and negative thoughts are bad, that is not biblical in any way, shape, or form. Scripture does call us to think about things that are good and noble and true and just, and that is absolutely true. So here's where I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like I am called to think about things that are positive. And there's times where you guys just need to shut things off. Like for instance, I'll give you an example, very real, very human moment for me. In doing the Passion Project, studying stuff for Brian Simmons, I have listened to so many hours of Brian Simmons teaching and lectures and preaching content. And it's to be completely honest, it's starting to drive me nuts. And I... I'm just so, I, I haven't, I'm so sick of it, to be completely frank with you guys, like human moment for me. I'm just so sick of listening to this guy talk. And I'm even getting like, in my heart, I'm like, I'm getting bitter to the, at this guy because of the stuff he says is crazy sometimes. And I, I'm blown away that he they allow him to teach in their churches. It's blowing me away. And this is why I've already edited, I, I recorded interviews like two weeks ago. And I've already edited them and they're scheduled to go up. I'm not touching this project for at least a month. At least a month. I'm not going to touch this project. I'm not going to go back to it. I'm not going to look at Brian Simmons' teaching. Because as soon as I saw that rising up in me, I thought, A, it's not healthy for me. I'm spending too much time dwelling on these things. And B, I cannot be a good a good um, person for you, a good source for you, if I'm at all bitter about this stuff. And so the point at which I saw that I'm bitter, this is why I had a whole, on deck, I have a whole video about Brian Simmons, false prophecy and false teaching, and that's just delayed. I was going to do it in, in late December, maybe early January. It's just delayed. I thought I, I need to just not touch it because here I am too negative. Okay, here's the, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I am too negative. I am irritated. Uh, this is not a good place for me to operate um, as someone who's going to help others work through this. And so I didn't now I'm not in that place in those interviews, but I'm in that place today. And so I'm going to just call it. And so here I am just like, I'm going to study Mark. I'm going to get back in, into that. And that's healthy for me. So there's, there's a truth there that's healthy. But if we just say that all positive thinking is good and all negative thinking is bad, that's not biblical in any way, shape or form. So God give us wisdom. Um, <clears throat> And, uh, and the dangers, you said, what are the dangers of that approach? If, if we have that approach of thinking all negative thinking is bad is we're going to be rejecting like direct revelation from God that, that inevitably, right? You're, you, you're going to reject the idea of God's judgment in the future. Uh, you'll reject the idea that Jesus is the exclusive way. You, we will have to reject like central gospel things at some point <clears throat> if you carry that to its logical conclusion. 
Stephen Lapp has a question. Off the cuff answer, please. Who was the most notable Old Testament leader in your mind and why? I'm doing a study on biblical leadership and would love your response. Most notable Old Testament leader, probably Moses. Um, I'm going to say Moses. Uh, you, you could say David or um, Solomon, I guess. But I'm going to say Moses because um, I, I would say Abraham, but Abraham wasn't really a leader. Right, Abraham was the was the was the father, the patriarch, but not so much a leader of a group of people. There wasn't even a group really significantly. Moses, though, right? He is the first leader of Israel. He leads them out of Egypt. He leads them up to the promised land. They don't go in, but he also gives them the Pentateuch, um, the Law of Moses. Um, I, I think that Moses is probably the most significant Old Testament leader <clears throat> in my mind. Uh, John Parizzo says, do you have any suggestions for someone who procrastinates on deeply studying the scriptures in fear of messing up? I want to study theological topics like eschatology, but I fear I'll do it wrong. Um, I guess what I would recommend is a couple things. One would be um, not studying doesn't protect you. Think about it. Are you more likely to be wrong if you study or if you don't study? Well, probably if you don't study, you'll have a host of beliefs that you've never tested, you've never vetted, you've never checked against scripture. So that fear of being wrong should drive you to study. Um, but I would also say what will protect you from some error when you're studying is A, multiple teachers who don't all have the same view. Um, <clears throat> B, intellectual humility where you don't say things with greater confidence than you actually should, right? Like we, we sometimes approach study, like I'm going to study this, I'm going to get the answers and then I'll have the answers. And by the time I'm done with this little study, I will know everything I need to know to say all these things authoritatively. And, and that's like a bad perspective. I, I instead say have degrees of confidence on your answers appropriately. Um, so there's a couple thoughts as far as eschatology goes. I would also say, John, more people have made mistakes on eschatology than they probably have on any other issue. And in my view, godly men who've made fools of themselves because they thought they had calculated things and figured things out. And the rest of us look at scripture and we're like, why did you say that? Like you should, but somehow that overconfidence and arrogance about predicting the future just undermines us. Let's have a humble view of eschatology where we recognize um, how wrong like they had the prophecies of Jesus, but they had totally misunderstood what the Messiah was going to do in his first coming, even though the, the scripture is there, the text is there, but the prevailing thought of the school of thinking of the people of the time was dominating them more so than the full, the full teaching of scripture. And that has happened in the church when it comes to the second coming uh, in, on occasion as well. Spazzy Jazzy has a question. Hi, Mike. I have a hundred questions, but could you pray for me? I'm anxious about my salvation and fear often that I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Also, how can we be praying for you and your wife? All right, Spazzy Jazzy, listen, we're going to pray for you right now as a group, but <clears throat> I want to encourage you. I have a video and, and the mods, some of the mods, someone's going to put it in the live chat right now for you. And I'll put it later in the video description, but a video on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I struggled with understanding this for a long, long time, but then I did a whole study project on the topic. Last year, I think it was, I taught through it. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I have a whole study on that. Please watch it. It's not there to freak you out. It's there to equip you and help you and help you work through this. Okay. And it's not a pat answer, right? Like the, to me, the pat answer is if you're worried, you committed the blasphemy of the spirit. You didn't. I think that's a pat answer. I understand it's therapeutically helpful, but it doesn't really help me understand what this thing is. And I, do you think it's possible for someone to commit it and then be worried about it? Like, I don't understand that that's logically true. 
But I do think the video I did should help you and equip you. I'm very happy with how that came out, happy with the clarity I got and with the way um, I was able to present it to others. And I, I hope that you find that useful. So let's, let's together, let's lift up Spazzy Jazzy. Um, yeah, let's pray for him. Um, I don't know if you're a, a guy or a girl, sorry, but I'll, I'll say he, cause that's the first thing that can remember. Uh, Lord, we pray for Spazzy Jazzy that, that you would bless him or her. Uh, with wisdom and clarity and understanding, Lord, to realize if anxiety is coming from a honest lack of faith in Christ, or if anxiety is coming from a um, an awareness of of his or her own failures, Lord, if that aware if that anxiety is caused by self failure and and self problems, self issues, we pray that it would dissipate and it would be just solved by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by the sufficiency of Jesus, who is the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who died for us, who cleanses us, who has forever sanctified us. We, we pray that that would happen. If, if this, if this spazzy jazzy anxiety is coming from a place of doubting the truth of Christ, then Lord may the truth of Christ be shining brightly and made clear and this choice of faith be made clear to this person. And we ask Lord, if instead it's a weird anxiety, psychological thing where, oh, I believe, but I'm, I'm worried. I don't believe enough. And I'm, I'm just scared that I, maybe I doubt and I don't know all that kind of thing, Lord, that, that those kind of fears would just be set aside and replaced with simple choices to trust in Christ in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. There you go. All right. We are, um, on Tina G's question and I'm going to move, <clears throat> I'm going to, you know what? I'm not going to rush through here. Um, this, I still have several questions left. I know we're going over an hour, but it's New Year's Day. And there is a tradition in the U.S. of marathons on New Year's Day. So this won't be a marathon, but it'll be a longer Q&A. Try to get to as many of these as possible. Tina G says, if we can't lean on our own understanding or trust in man or a group, and there are many ways to interpret the Bible, how do we know whether we are following our heart or conscience? Let me try to break this down piece by piece, this particular question. You says you said if we can't lean on our own understanding, okay, that's one quote from Proverbs three five, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. I think the idea here is not that you don't use your understanding, but you don't lean on your understanding. See, there's a difference between using your brain and leaning on it. Um, and I say your brain, but I mean your 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 understanding of things. I should use my understanding, right? Like if I don't use my understanding, I don't even know what it means to trust in the Lord. Like I have to understand that to mean, to know what that means. Leaning on my understanding is when I see a conflict between what God has said and the things I'm experiencing, what God has said and the issues that are going on today. And then I go, Lord, I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm going to trust the clear revelation of what you said in your word. Okay. The Lord has said that I uh, might put my trust and faith in Christ, that I'm forgiven and washed clean. Yet, yet I just don't understand how he could forgive me. Okay, well, don't lean on your own understanding. It's okay that you don't understand, like fully comprehend it, but you're going to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Oh, Lord, I understand that the doctrine of the Trinity is in scripture. I see that Jesus is God, but he's also man. He's both, right? I see that the Father is God, the Spirit is God, the Son is God, but there's only one God. So there's like this three person, one being thing, but I don't really understand it fully. And it's like, okay, that's all right. You know, it's got what God has told you. You don't fully comprehend it. Now you need to trust him. That's how I would take that that perspective. I would not take it as don't use your understanding. Um, now, the next thing you said was, um, we're also not to trust in man or a group. And there are many ways to interpret the Bible. 
Um, so yeah, I'm not to trust in man, but that here again doesn't mean don't believe anybody, right? I, I believe what Paul wrote was, so I'm believing Paul, I'm trusting Paul and that the Lord used him, but I'm not trusting in man as opposed to trusting in God. You see, the, there's the difference. I'm going to trust in man over God. So the world pressures you to compromise Christian ethical values on say same-sex marriage or something, uh, homosexuality, and, and they want to push you, push you, push you. And it's like, well, am I going to trust man or am I going to trust God here? There's an example of that situation. Um, then you said there's many ways to interpret the Bible. <clears throat> okay, but this is, this, Tina, I think this expresses that maybe you're going through a lot of confusion about how to understand the Bible. It's true there are many ways to interpret the Bible, but guess what? There's many ways to interpret what you said too. But you trusted, you trusted that when you wrote, I would be able to figure out what you meant and be able to answer your question. Like you didn't think, why would I even write him a message? Because there's many ways to interpret my message. It's like, we understand that there's like a certain, like, obviousness that is implied when people send messages and the bible is very much like that much of the bible is plain and simple and easy to understand there's also portions of scripture and there's a significant number of them that are like what does that mean hmm. right but when when jesus says like i'm the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me like how is that confusing right like you can't interpret it wrongly but you have to do it on purpose and everyone knows um, when, when scripture says God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Like we all know what that means. I don't even need to interpret it for you. So there are plain statements in scripture and the most important things are generally the most obvious things, the most central things to our faith. And it's totally okay for you to say, Hey, there's parts of scripture. I know there's parts I don't understand and just not know. Right? Like, I just don't know what that means. Okay, maybe Ezekiel 32. I don't, maybe I don't know what that means. I don't exactly how to interpret that. Right? But, but John 1, like, Jesus is the word. The word's with God. The word is God. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Like, I get that. That I understand. So what I'm saying is don't fall into despair of thinking that because there's way, so many ways of interpreting the Bible. Look, there's, there is, there's like a real author who really wrote, God really inspired them, and it really meant something. And the context of that writing and that in the rest of scripture does give us like really big clues as to what it means. It is not a hopeless thing. This is why when I sit down with other people, like I remember did an interview with Craig Blomberg and we were in 1 Corinthians. And <clears throat> that interview comes out, <clears throat> um, not this coming Wednesday, but the following. Douglas Moose this Wednesday, I believe. And then next one is Craig Blomberg. But he comes to 1 Corinthians and he has a passage where he's like, Brian Simmons has misinterpreted this and then translated it wrong. And it's about communion. And then he talks about it. And then I talk about it. Now, I've never talked to Craig Blomberg, but I've interpreted the passage too. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is not saying that at all. It's saying this. And then, and I'm telling him, like, it's talking about how, you know, communion is about how Jesus is the one who washes us of our sin. You don't have to feel like you're not worthy to take communion. It's, it's about knowing that this is Christ's sacrifice for you. And then Craig Blomberg is like, yes, Amen. You see this like two totally different guys who've studied carefully, him more than me, I'm sure. And we're both totally in agreement without having ever discussed it ahead of time. That happens all the time with the Bible, all the time. It happens right now. As I'm reading scripture and I talk to you about it and you go, yeah, obviously, obviously. So yeah, don't fall into despair. Scripture is not that hard. There are parts of it that are very hard, right? But not as a whole. It's not that hard. Right? You would get there, Jesus, the book of Acts, right? the coming of the Holy Spirit, the opening of the gospel to the Gentiles, the preaching of Christ to the world. Like the most important stuff is pretty obvious. Um, then you also went on to say, um, how do we know whether we're following our heart or conscience? Um, and that I'm not sure how to, there's your hard part. I don't know how to interpret that. 
So when you say, how do I know whether I'm following my heart or conscience? You could be asking, um, I want to follow my heart and conscience, but I don't know if I'm doing it right. Or maybe, and here's my guess as you're saying this, I don't want to follow my own heart or conscience. I want to follow what scripture says. And for that, I say, this is why God has provided you a Bible. Um, read the scripture yourself, understand it for yourself, you know, find godly people. You're going to make some mistakes. Look, all of us are probably going to have some area where our theology is wrong. I probably do too. Like it seems inevitable. Like I try really hard not to, but I'm not going to figure that I have to eliminate every error because then I'm just going to eliminate all beliefs altogether because everything I believe might be wrong in some way. So it's okay to recognize I might be wrong about something, but I have good enough reason to think this is what scripture is teaching. I'm going to live that out consistently in my life. And if I learn more, I'll change. And that would be a better perspective. Don't despair. Don't despair. Yeah, just uh, serve the Lord the best you can and trust him with the results. DG Master Temple says, does God actually love us unconditionally? Does he still love the people whose conscience he intentionally hardens, those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit and those who go to hell? Thank you, Mike. I think that there is some degree of love. Well, I, these are kind of two questions. Let me answer the first one. Does God love us unconditionally? I think it, mean, it, it depends on what you mean by unconditional. So I've given this some thought. And um, obviously there's some condition, right? Because like you're a human and not like, like a, a rock. Does God love a piece of granite? as much as he loves you. I don't think so. I think that seems obviously false. So his love is at least conditional on me being human, right? As opposed to me being a rock, me being a tree. There seems to be some conditionality there. Now, is it conditional upon my performance? Okay, well, there I say no. I, I don't think it is. But love is a two-way relationship. And so... <clears throat> um, and you know this already, but I'll just point it out. When you like somebody, when you care about somebody, when, you, when you're when falling in love with somebody, it doesn't work unless they love you back. And so your offer of love may be genuine, right? Your real love and your, your passion, your desire for them may be very genuine. But when you're like, hey, you want to go out? Hey, you want to marry me? And they say no. Well, as much as you may care about them, there's a stopping point of that love. The love cannot be fully expressed in relationship because the other person rejects it. And that's the nature of the best kind of love is that it's optional, right? You can choose to accept it and then it's mutual. It's mutual love. And so obviously God doesn't have the same love relationship with those who reject him versus those who accept him. The next question and then this second part of your question is, does he still love the people who, whose conscience he intentionally hardens, those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit and those who go to hell? Now, I'm not a Calvinist, so I would view that hardening thing differently probably than Calvinists would. And I have a video on that, like why God hardens hearts. Um, and I go through a whole bunch of scripture on that topic, and I would recommend it if you're interested. Um, <clears throat> so I think it's temporary. I don't think hardening is permanent, and I do think it's judgment-related. I don't think it's arbitrary. So those are a couple points. But does God still love people to go to hell? Well, scripture does tell us that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Scripture tells us that Jesus is like weeping over Jerusalem. And he says, how, how many times I long to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. And um, there's there's this, this weeping that goes on. Like God's heart breaks over those who reject him. Jesus on the cross, like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Yet not all of them would receive the forgiveness because not all of them would accept it. So I think, yeah, God does love them. But that love is stopped because of rejection. And so the offer of love is there. The intention of love is there. The love in his heart is there. But it's re his re they reject and then holiness demands judgment. 
my short answer. Um, <clears throat> Anne-Marie Ellerton, uh, Ellertson has a question. Ehrman says the word for born again in Aramaic doesn't have the double meaning it has in Greek. Thus, the conversation couldn't have gone the way it is referred to in John 3. What's the solution? <clears throat> yeah, so... I, I love when you people ask art like random questions and I, it's, I just so happen to have studied that particular issue a while back. So, <clears throat> um, Bart Ehrman is, it says that in John three, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus and he says, you must be born again. And then, um, Nicodemus is like, how can a man be born again when he hasn't, you know, go back into his mother's womb. And there's like a, this word play that happens in Greek that's there. It's kind of like a pun uh, that happens in Greek with with the discussion between Nicodemus and Jesus. Now, Bart Ehrman has an assumption here that, he, you know, he has. And the assumption, as I understand this case, is that Jesus didn't speak Greek and Jesus didn't talk to Nicodemus in Greek. So then the case is made that in John 3, John is fabricating things. He's adding stuff to what Jesus said. And the conversation with Nicodemus, if it, if it happened at all, it didn't happen quite like that. And John's writing in Greek. And so he adds and changes the words of Jesus. Now there's an element of this where I say, I don't have to worry too much about that because part of me would say, well, okay, you are writing in a different language than he spoke. So do things do change and some stuff you, you, you might lose. And so you change it slightly in order to, ch this is what translating does, right? You try to get meaning from the original into the new language, but I'm going to stop right there and say, wait a minute, why do we think Jesus didn't speak Greek? Why do we think it? Like some people are extremely confident Jesus didn't speak Greek, but I, I know Dr. Peter Williams from Tyndale House, uh, Cambridge. Peter Williams has made a whole case that Jesus spoke Greek and he's actually presented this in some places. I, maybe I should get him on for an interview on it. I think it'd be an interesting topic. But <clears throat> Jesus, he's a carpenter in um, Nazareth. Now Nazareth, it seems, may have been the location where the carpenters were working on large Roman building projects that were years long during the time when Jesus was growing up. And this would require them, carpenters, to be hired. They were hired labor. They weren't just building local things in Nazareth, but they were hired labor for Romans and Greek speakers. We've actually found a sign in Nazareth, and guess what language it's in? Greek. And so there's correspondence between the Greek and the Jews going on and Greek is becoming the lingua franca. It's like the, the language that the people are more and more talking in. They're speaking Greek. There's even Jews um, in Jerusalem in the book of Acts who don't even speak Jewish or Hebrew. They just speak Greek. They're Hellenists, right? But they're Jewish, but they, they don't, they're Hellenized. They speak Greek. That's what Hellenized is referring to. And they don't speak Hebrew or Aramaic. And um, what I'm saying here is that, yeah, they were, Jesus was probably multilingual uh, even apart from some sort of special empowerment um, of his divine nature, that, that he was just multilingual as due to his job. Peter the fisherman, um, he probably spoke at least some Greek because he's constantly dealing with buying and selling goods in an area that has Jewish and uh, Gentile people, uh, Greek and Hebrew or Aramaic speakers in the first century. So Peter Williams actually builds a case where point after point after point, he offers reasons to think that Jesus likely did speak Greek. And then he returns to John three. Um, I think Peter Williams is the one who does all this. <clears throat> he returns to John three and says, and in John three, Nicodemus, okay, he's a, he's a Jewish leader. He's not going to speak Greek lower himself. Yeah, but he's also a highly educated man. He's a very important man. He interacts with Greek people all the time. And here he is talking to Jesus by night. And he wants to have a secret conversation that less of Jesus's followers will overhear and understand. So it is entirely possible. Nicodemus actually speaks to Jesus in Greek 
because he wants less people to be able to eavesdrop in on the conversation because he's embarrassed because he's a Pharisee coming to Jesus by night. So I think that that is a uh, quite possible explanation for that. And then the problem just disappears. Um, question from Ken33TG. What practices in a party or wedding should be different for a Christian versus non-believers? Or what should one not practice as a Christian? Drinking, dancing. Okay, so uh, I have a whole video on drinking. And um, now I don't drink. I still to this day don't drink. Even though I, my conviction on it biblically has is strong, I think drinking is okay. I choose not to for reasons I've got, right? But but um, but drinking is 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 okay. Moderation is okay. Um, drinking at a wedding to tell people they can't drink at a wedding would be really strange because Jesus literally made alcohol at a wedding celebration. Now I don't think the people got drunk off of it. I don't think he. I don't think they were already drunk and then he made the made the alcohol and these weddings were days long. Okay, it doesn't mean the people were inebriated. Um, and people try to make a big thing about that. Jesus got people drunk, and I think those people are just being stupid to use a gentle word. Um, but what practices should be allowed? Is dancing allowed? Well, I mean, yes. Uh, dancing's not inherently bad. Um, our culture has turned dancing largely into a very sexualized behavior. So can I say dancing that's sexualized is inappropriate because of the sexualization, not because it's dancing? So yeah, drinking and dancing are just fine uh, at a wedding. The question is, what moderation and what cultural situation have you got going on in that wedding? Are people then going to get drunk? Are they going to be all sexualized dancing? It's it's the it's the nature of drunkenness and sexualizing that are the problems here. It isn't the actual behaviors themselves. So I would not limit what a Christian can or can't do with their wedding. Probably one practice that personally just really gets me, I do not like at all, is the idea of, of pulling the, um, the woman's... Um, uh, I just totally spaced right now on the like leg strap thingy off all sexualized and then throwing it off to some other guy. Um, I think that that is weird and twisted. <laughs> I don't understand that. And I'm not trying to judge you if you've done that. Look, I'm just giving you my honest opinion. I think that like, as I try to be objective, I look at it and go, what on earth are we doing? Right? Like here we, we treasure this special, uh, it's the garter. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> the garter belt, the garter, not belt, the garter thing. All right. So we're trying to treasure this special, wonderful thing. These people of saving themselves for each other. And then we're like, ooh, sexy moment. Ooh, reach under her, her dress. And I'm like, I don't understand. I don't understand. Stop. <laughs> just stop, everybody, please. Uh, throwing the bouquet is cool. Can we just come up with something that doesn't sexualize the bride um, in a public and inappropriate fashion for, for the guy to do? That would be great. Maybe he could... Um, uh, throw a video game controller out to the audience because you won't have time for that anymore. <laughs> All right. Uh, Sano1002 has a question. Do you think the apostles taught the doctrine of imminence? Could it have been possible for someone like Peter who knew he was going to die according to Jesus's words? Can we believe it today? Um, th this is a tough one. There is some, I'm just going to give you, uh, I'm just going to assume you guys are somewhat invested in this topic, right? Imminence, the idea that Jesus is coming back immediately or at least at any moment. They definitely in the New Testament taught as though the coming of Christ was this something something that we should have in our awareness that we should be ready for right now. Um, there are those who suggest that the New Testament taught it was going to happen within that like within the the lifetimes of the people reading the, the early letters of the church. And here's where I want I would want to push back a bit, but I do think that where I think we can safely land, I want to push back on that right I, strongly actually. But where I think we can safely land is the idea of imminence as we should be ready for Christ to return at any moment because you don't know when he's coming back. 
and it could happen anytime. I think that is something that we are supposed to have in our hearts and lives. Now, to balance this out, we should also have a retirement plan. Um, there are times in the, the church circle I was raised in where we thought, like, the, the, the culture was saying, Jesus is coming back, he's coming back. It's not he could come back anytime. It was like, he's coming back. Like, we're probably not, Mike, you're probably not even going to get married. You're not even going to get old. Um, that was the vibe. That's not healthy for Christians. You become an irresponsible human being if you don't think you have to plan for the future. So I think you should be ready for Christ to come back now, tomorrow, that'd be nice, or for Jesus to come back in the lives of your great-great-grandchildren or great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, right? Because the people, let's say in the Reformation, the 1500s, they probably didn't think Jesus was going to still be waiting for his return, long-suffering, allowing more people to come into the kingdom of God daily 500 years later. But guess what? There might be a 500 years later than right now. So let's not take eminence um, and push it to the point of predicting the coming of Christ, which no man knows the day or the hour. Let's be ready for Jesus to come now. Let's be ready for him to come in the lives of our great, 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 great grandchildren. You should plan for retirement and you should also be ready to, to, to be caught up to be with the Lord. Um, there's my, my thought to balance that all out. Um, SJ has a question. First Corinthians 11.10 states the husband has authority over his wife and Ephesians 5.23 states the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Since Christ disciplines the church, is there biblical grounds for wife discipline and to what extent can a husband enforce his authority? Um, okay, so I'm going to be like, this is a later project this year to cover all of these issues of of gender roles of women in the church, that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm going to ask not to answer those kinds of questions. But when it comes to the marriage role, let's look at the 1 Corinthians eleven ten passage because I'm not remembering off the top of my head. Um, oh yeah, this is this is the passage, one of the passages I'm going to be studying a lot uh, this year. So yeah, there, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority overhead because of the angels. This isn't talking about a husband so much here. It's talking about something else and I'm going to get back to that later this year. I apologize for leaving you hanging. Um, the basic question is this. Christ disciplines the church. Is there biblical grounds for a wife being disciplined by her husband? I think the answer is um, no. So Christ disciplines the church. That's there, There's truth there. Revelation 3. Um, there's people he threatens to kill in Revelation 3. Do you see the problem? <laughs> um, let me also point out a difference here in Ephesians um, that might actually help us understand why I would absolutely draw a line between a wife and a child. A wife is not a child, right? A couple things I'll point out. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands and everything. So this is a instruction not to husbands, to wives. Husbands are not being told, make your wife subject. If, if Husband, if you think your job is to make your wife be subject to you, this makes you abusive. God never tells husbands to make their wives subject. That would require discipline. That would require other types of things that I would consider abusive behaviors. It does tell wives to voluntarily be submissive. When it talks to husbands, it says, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, the love your wife description is not what Jesus does to the church now as Lord in heaven, but what Jesus did for the church while he was walking the earth. And let me ask you this, where did he discipline the church while he was walking the earth? 
The example we're to follow is Jesus dying for the sins of the church, of the people. Ultimately, we become the church, but for the sins of the world. This is the example husbands are to follow. It's not husbands discipline your wives so you can keep them in subjection. There's no obsession with husbands being focused on their wives being in submission. There's an obsession with husbands being just absolutely devoted to self-sacrificially dying to themselves to help and bless and take care of their wives. And when their wives might sin against them, they would respond with, Lord, forgive her. She doesn't know what she's doing. This is the kind of attitude a husband should have. So a wife's submission uh, instruction is not an instruction for husbands to make their wives submit. That's what I'm saying. That's That I believe is abusive. Now, it, 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 there's more. Let me share this. When scripture goes on to talk about children, it uses a very different word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. See, wives aren't even told to obey their husbands. They submit, right? But it's just a different word for kids. Okay, wives aren't children. So there's a hierarchy of adult relationships in a marriage and in a family. But then there's children and they're the ones that must be disciplined. There's what scripture clearly talks about disciplining your kids and doing it in a godly way. It actually warns fathers um, that they not provoke their children to anger, which is over discipline, right? But there's no warning to, to, to husbands about not doing that to their wife because there's no instruction to discipline your wife in the first place. But with the fathers, yeah, you are going to discipline your kids, but don't provoke them to anger. Don't overdo it. Don't do it out of your wrath. Don't do it wrongly. This is a, ver a very big danger. We raise angry kids because we're inconsistent uh, parents or we're disciplining out of our irritations instead of out of godly principles, or we, or we provoke them to anger because we don't discipline them at all. Um, you can actually create a rebellious, angry kid because you don't discipline at all. And that's why it says, do not provoke your child to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I hope that answers that question. Husband, if you think it's your job to discipline your wife, I think you need to stop. And if you want to call me a weak man, um, I want to challenge you to a fight. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, whenever I teach on this topic, there's always somebody in the comments like, what a weak man, what a sissy la la man. No, I'm reading scripture and you're just being an arrogant bully and you're calling it manliness. You're, I have words for you, but I won't share them. All right. Um, Paolo Ace has a question. How literally should we take what is said about hell? Is it a literal place of fire, gnashing of teeth, etc., Or is it a metaphor? Is either interpretation wrong? This is an area where, again, this is another project. I want to do a whole project on this and then bring a teaching. I'm not just pushing you off because I'm afraid to talk about the issue. I have in the past taken a fairly literalistic. I used to have a really literal view of hell when I was really young because of what I was taught. As I read the scripture, I started thinking that these descriptions could be easily more metaphorical, right? And, I, and I'm not... I'm not thinking that because I'm compromised. I really think they could be more metaphorical. But here's the thing. If they're metaphors, they're metaphors for things. Like it's a metaphor for, if it uses fire, the fire is a metaphor for destruction. It's not like it's, oh, don't worry. It's just la-la land. It's like it's like falling in the chocolate river, uh, Willy Wonka's, you know, wonderful trip. He's, that's it. You know, you, you're a bad egg. Ha ha. This is not, that's not hell, right? Hell is definitely judgment. It's God's wrath. Um, but I, I plan on doing a, research project on it. Maybe this year. I don't want to announce it though because it's a big maybe. All right. This is our um, next question here. Um, and okay. Then a bonus one. All right. Uh, who wants, Somebody wants to see the sticker on my guitar. <laughs> I'll share that with you guys. Um, Edward Phoenix says, my kids two and four received children's books on evolution from a family member for Christmas. How would you approach the situation of receiving the books and introducing children to other worldviews? My wife and I want to teach our children about worldviews other than Christianity and allow them to think about 
and respond to them, they will inevitably be introduced to evolution. Well, I, I think it's really great that you want to introduce your kids to other worldviews. Um, you know who I would recommend you look at for this is Natasha Crane. Natasha Crane. She has a um, website. I think it's called Christian Mom Thoughts. Dot something. Um, just Google Natasha Crane. I think it's just C-R-A-I-N. And she is always doing this sort of thing. She's equipping parents to work through these types of issues with their kids. I highly recommend her. She's doing it in real life with her kids. She's learning from those experiences. She networks with other parents to find out what works and then gets that information out to other people. She's also written multiple books on the topic. Please go look up Natasha Crane. Good for you for wanting to introduce your kids to different views, different worldviews, and not just to, to hide them. There is no bubble. There is no bubble anymore. It's all gone, okay? We're going to be exposed to all kinds of different views. We need to understand what we believe, and it really helps if we understand what other people believe too. This is healthy. It's not unhealthy, but it needs to be done well because along, along with other people's beliefs come a lot of deception. Maybe I'm even deceived on some of my beliefs, and I should be open to that. But when I go look into Mormonism, don't act like I'm not jumping into an ocean of deceitful information about Jesus and the Bible and Christianity. Of course I am. And so I need to be very aware that it's not just like this hokey dokey thing. I'm explore worldviews. Like this is this is um, uh, worldview warfare <laughs> when we enter into this area. So you want to have a lot of wisdom. All right. The last thing that was requested was to show you guys the sticker on my on my guitar that sits back there. So a, a friend used to have a little sticker printing business where he would sort of a business. It was like a hobby of his, and he printed these these stickers, and I put one on my guitar. And there it is. I follow Christ, Mark eight thirty four, and then his twelve was was the his twelve was the name of the uh, of the thing. So yeah, kind of out of tune. I haven't played this thing in a while. Anyway, last thing for you guys, little little tune, one of my favorite little tunes. Stater Brothers. That's all I got for you. <laughs> I hope I don't get a copyright infringement rule thing going on there. All right, thank you guys. It's been uh, it's been fun. This first stream of the year, I feel somewhat refreshed and had had a great time with you. And we'll be picking up. Um, let's see, Monday we're getting into the Mark series again. Jesus talking about his his identity, his nature. I mean, how exciting to have Christ talking about his own nature, interpreting messianic prophecy for us in Mark. I'm excited to get into that. Wednesday, we've got uh, Douglas Moo, Dr. Douglas Moo, like the guy in the world in the Book of Romans. He's reviewing the Passion Translation Book of Romans, and uh, that is going to be great. And then on Friday, I'll be back with you again for another Q&A. So that's about it. Thank you. Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and lift his countenance up upon you and give you peace. <laughs>